Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Four Press Podcast presented by GolfWeek.com. I'm your host, David Dusek, and this week I'm joined by two women who both know a hell of a lot more about golf, certainly at the highest level, than I do. I'm first joined by Dottie Pepper, two-time LPGA Tour major champion, and now an on-course analyst with CBS Sports, and we talk about her new book, which is Letters to a Future Champion, My Time with Mr. Pulver. It is one of the more unique and interesting looks at the development and the creation of a championship golfer, championship athlete, as well as a really, really good person. I really enjoyed chatting with Dottie about the book itself, about her experiences, and about what this very special person and mentor meant to her. Then I was joined by Julie Williams, and we previewed this weekend's upcoming Walker Cup. The Walker Cup is in every other event, uh, every other year event, I should say, uh, competition conducted amongst the best amateur golfers in the United States against the best amateur golfers in Great Britain and Ireland, Team GBNI. They're going to be playing that at Seminole Golf Club down in Florida. Julie was there for media day. She has been covering a lot of these guys who have been playing at the highest levels of amateur golf, collegiate golf for a long time. She will also be down at Seminole Golf Club this weekend covering it for Golf Week and GolfWeek.com. So it was great to catch up with her, go over everything we need to check out this weekend with regard to the Walker Cup and, uh, and to have a few laughs. So sit back and enjoy. I would like to welcome to the Four Press Podcast, Dottie Pepper, who everybody knows. There's no reason why I need to introduce you. If you're listening to a golf podcast, I think it's pretty safe to assume that you watch golf on television, that you appreciate, you know, a, a lot of past champions, major winners. Do you have, is that, do they give you like a ring? Like if you win a, an LPGA major, do you get a ring or some kind of cool swag that you basically just get to bring with you everywhere? So you don't have to, to say it, but everybody knows it. Uh, well, I only I won the I'm on my major twice, so I wouldn't know about the others. But <laughs> but I did. They did at the I can't remember which anniversary it was for the Dino, the ANA, whatever you want to call it now. Um, yeah. They gave they gave diamond ring. It was a silver silver based diamond ring, um, and mine had two chips. Right, the regular stone put two chips in it because of of winning twice. So yes, there there was some really special swag. And this year, because it was the fiftieth anniversary of the tournament, they did a small brooch, which I think I'm going to change into something I can wear around my neck. That was a a, di- a diamond shape with all pearls around it and Dinah's wave in the middle. Oh, you've got to have that. Absolutely, really cool. That is as 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 my. 16 year old son would say that is the low key flex, you know, that you can basically, you don't have to say anything. That is, if you're just wearing something like that, it's like going to a golf tournament. And if you happen to just be in a green jacket, you have to say a damn thing. Everybody knows what's going on. So that's great. Um, just running through the accomplishments, obviously that you had said two times, a and a dinosaur winner, um, three times, uh, tying for third at the U.S. Women's Open, so close there. 
Player of the Year, 1992. Never had too much luck across the pond in the British in the Women's British Open. I was su- surprised by that. Wasn't on our schedule, and I did, but I did go a couple of times just because I wanted to play. But it was never on our schedule. So Furman University, um, the one that I love the most: six Solheim Cups, fifteen, five, and two. Hey, Ryder Cup fellas, you listening? Um, this is not your first foray. With the reason why you and I are talking, you're talking to everybody. New book, self-published book out here, Letters to a Future Champion, My Time with Mr. Pulver, which I've had a chance to go over now for about a week and a half to two weeks, and I have thoroughly enjoyed. So congratulations. I think it's going to be, I hope it's going to be hugely successful for you. I hope your shipping department is going to be very, very busy. Um, You are self-publishing and self-shipping a lot of the stuff, right? You're talking to the shipping department. (laughs) Exactly. So it's a... um, what was the thing that inspired you to put this together? Where where did the idea for this book come from? I always I, I kept all the letters. It is, it is based on letters that that Mr. Pulver and I exchanged over a, about a five and a half year period when I was a, a teenager into my into turning twenty. And you know I, I I always kept them very close. They when I moved they never went in a moving truck. I mean they were always at a reasonable grasp for me, and even. Even if you know, just sitting around, I would just oh, let's let's just go back through one of those books, or one of those letters that, and then books that he recommended as a result of the letters. But it was really my husband David's idea a few years ago. He said, "Daddy, you know, there's there's a book here," and I just sort of scoffed and said, "Ah, come on, that's that's for, you know for somebody else. This is this is my personal stuff." And I, I know it's really there's an amazing amount of just good old golf, but more life lessons and mentorship and all these things wound into it, uh, how to be resilient. I mean, everything, he covered everything, as you know, from, from going through it the last couple of weeks, but it was really, and even Jimmy Roberts, because he knew about Mr. Pulver. He said, Dot, you got a book there, but who has the time to do it and to do it, to do it right. Uh, and then the COVID lockdowns came about and I was bound and determined I wasn't going to let that time go unwasted and what what am I going to do and started like so many people going through old files and well maybe this is the time to do it and here we are just about a year later it was ten and a half months from when I really set up the table in the basement and laid everything out and really started digging because there was stuff that their his kids had left me that I hadn't gone completely through and to get to this point where we had to be at the at the printers um, last week of February, so it was ten and a half months. Did the idea of putting a book? I mean, you've you've been involved with children's books before. A lot of people may not be aware of that, um, but but you have been. Bogey Tees Off is a children's series of basically golf balls, learning life lessons, essentially. Um, so you you understand? Okay, here is a book. Doing something like this project, though, I have to understand would would be totally different in just the the size of it, the scope of it, and also the personal reflection that goes into something like this. There's a lot of you that's in here at an age when I have a daughter. It, it it's it's it it exposes exactly who you are in a lot of different ways. So, how daunting a task was this when you started? Um, there, there. Well, I can I can sum it up. I think this way. Uh, there was no Kleenex involved in bogey until kids started telling their stories about being bullying, being bullied. This was this was a flood. 
um, to go back through so many of these. Because as you know through the letters, there's letters that I wrote to him. I didn't know he kept all of those letters until I started going through that, those boxes last year during the lockdown. Uh, that's when it really it smoked me. I didn't realize I, how much I meant to him until right. just a year ago. You know, it's so easy to think that these kind of relationships are one-sided, that you appreciate the person, but but when you come to find out that they're appreciating and getting as much from you in this mentor relationship, it's, in some ways, I would imagine humbling. But what 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 made you decide to format the book itself this way? I mean, you've got these letters, in, and when people see the book, they are essentially scanned in, so you see some of them are written on three-ring pages. And in some cases, you have... My kids will never understand this stuff. And when it went into a three-ring binder, if 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 the page would rip, you had to put these little like white stickers on there to to reestablish a circle. All that's in here. Your handwriting, his mistypings, and going in and, and whiting out and writing over. It's it's all there, which makes it really kind of unique. What made you decide that you needed to keep that as opposed to simply copying these things and typing them up and it's nice and clean and more traditional? Well, the, the original thought for the book really was to just do the letters. And I, it was sort of be modeled after a book that Peter Thompson did, a small paperback. And it was a lot of his musings when he was writing for other publications or letters he had written to certain golf organizations about a certain subject and it and it was really nicely done and I thought well that's kind of the model of what I want to do I wanted to be a paperback something simple and then Martin Miller and and David got a hold of me and said no you got a whole lot more here and when Martin Miller uh, and his design team say we need to take this deep I mean, with all the things that they've done between Augusta and landscape photography and at the honorable company uh, and uh, really across golf and just some of the work that he's done. I just, I thought, well, if Martin says that this is the way it should be done, this is the way we're going to do it. And, and yep. he dove completely in. And if you know Martin at all, you know, he's a passionate guy about it. And he and his, um, his right hand man, Tim Cottrell, they, they were amazing about their vision for it, but also their specificity and, and how they wanted things scanned. I learned a lot having to scan all these things back to them and make sure they were, they were of, of proper quality to, to put in a, on a book of this sort. How much of this exercise during COVID and then in the process afterwards when you, you're starting to then re-edit and go over galleys and all of the process of making a book that there's no reason why listeners need to understand this, but but it's there's a lot of steps and you see the same pages multiple times, catching errors, repositioning art, all laying out pages. How much it becomes a therapy exercise for you in basically putting not just the book together, which during a time of COVID, which hopefully, you know, the lockdown, you know, is is going to come down and, and everything is, is great. Hopefully in, in, in the months and years ahead, we never have to go through anything like this again. But you're going through something that I don't know if you go through these letters often anymore. They're there. You travel with them. They're important to you. But how much of it was reestablishing who you are, where you are from, and sort of getting a sense of self in a, in a time during the world when like everything is just going nuts? And I would imagine it had to have been very grounding and reassuring. Yeah, it was. And, and a lot of the lens that I looked through it, um, 
was not wanting to keep all of this locked up just for myself in that hand-me-down three-ring binder from my dad, but also the fact that Mr. Pulver served in World War I. I mean, he went through something that the world had never been through and came back. He was gassed. I mean, I, I have a photo that's since surfaced that one of his daughters gave me uh, of all of the, the youngsters. I mean, he was 17, 18 years old when he when he reported for duty in Saratoga at the train station. And there are hundreds of them all crammed together. And they had no idea what they were going to face. He was gassed and he did come back injured. Never really spoke about it. But no post-traumatic stress as we we know about it now but yep. uh it was it was a time to remember and he he talked about a little bit about just getting through things like you're, there's going to be an end to things that seem overwhelming and yep. I, I thought about him in world war one and where we are today and it is going to get better and and i think he was he was always he was a realist, but he was an optimist at the same time, and I think that's what we need to be. Yeah, it um, it feels like things are starting to get better, and I want to get a little bit more towards that towards the end of this podcast. I received my second shot. My wife has had her second one. My son, thankfully, just had his second one on Wednesday. Um, we're trying to do our part, and if anybody out there is listening, please just 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 do do as you know do the next right thing. And right now that's getting a couple shots in the arm and it's not a big deal. Um, your penmanship. Oh my gosh. Where, where does this come from? Did you, did you have like a team of nuns with like long, like canes, like hitting you every time you miss it? Where, where have you had the penman? Where did that come from? Uh, my dad primarily, my, my dad has amazing penmanship and, uh, the one letter or two letters that are in there for my mom, you can see that she had her cursive writing is, is extraordinarily good. Still is. Uh, but I didn't go to Catholic school, so it didn't come from there. It came from my parents. <laughs> they, they both set a, a pretty good, pretty good standard, and my and my sister does as well. I, I have to. I, I look though back and see how it changed over time. Yes. Yep. Well, your stationery changed over time too, because you had a couple with, which is probably a good thing, because it would have gotten a little weird, you know, down there at Furman with some of that early stationery that you had as a teenager. I still love today. I still like um, having having good stationery and picking things up from places. Um, explain to people who may not be aware, may not have the book in the gist of it. Who was Mister Pulver? You've given us a, a little bit of detail, but but a golf professional, it seems um, nowadays, as we're sitting here in twenty twenty one a true throwback, but at the time, not really like this is where golf professionals, a lot of this ideas that he had and a lot of this, the way that he probably went about his life, we would refer to now as old school, but, but he, he was of that generation. So talk to us a little bit about who he was and what he did. Well, he, he was of that generation. And, and by the time he finished um, his understudies and became a, a PGA professional. Uh, he was a founding member of the Northeastern New York PGA section, which is the smallest in the, in the whole like 50, 51 sections for 41 seconds. I, I forget now I've been off the board so long, uh, but, the, but uh, he was a founding member of that PGA section and did everything from top to bottom at, as a PGA professional, because he wasn't just a teacher. He was also a golf course architect, a club maker, uh, an agronomist. I'm sure he cleaned his fair share of bathrooms on, on properties just to make sure everything was done properly. And um, But he was also a mentor to a lot of people in and around upstate New York. And when when you mentioned George and Martha, Martha Pulver, it was like it was the king and queen of golf of upstate New York. Martha was a wonderful player. 
their their son uh, was a high level junior player into his in, into his amateur time. Um, daughter actually played college golf. It, it, that's that was crazy stuff at that time. So he was part part visionary as well, I think. But he took me on as a project. I wouldn't say a project. Um, Martha had died or was was to die four days uh, after he agreed to me, agreed to, to help me move forward in, in the summer of 1981. And um, it just became, I think it was medicinal for him. And it was the time when I, I needed I needed help. My dad had taken me as far in the game as, as he possibly could. And uh, we were, it was instant respect and, and we worked hard, but we had, we had a lot of fun in learning. So your dad teaches you the game, introduces you to golf. Um, his mom actually was the one that introduced me to the game of golf specifically, but dad kind of okay. took it from there. Yeah. So at what point, where are you as a junior, as a player, when dad is like, yeah, you've, I've pretty much given you everything I can give and decides how did it come to be about that, that Mr. Pulver would end up being your coach at that point. How did that transition work? It was uh, the summer of 1980. So I played in my second state junior tournament, got to the final and, and got, you know, I, I didn't win. I lost to a very, very much a better, better player, but it was at that time that dad thought he kind of, that was all he, he knew about the game was in the, that I needed somebody else. And so after, because we still had our driving range at the time, um, Mr. Pulver and Martha and their their second oldest daughter, Madeline, who was the, the one who played college golf, would often come up during the summers and they would hit balls and I, I would watch. I mean, I was still, I was working, washing golf balls and doing all that sort of stuff at the range, but I had a high out the back door. And I had known him from being up at Brookhaven where he designed, I played a lot of my golf up there with my grandmother, watched him take soil samples, watched him and Martha up there in the evenings just and she he would know he wasn't playing at the at then anymore but she was and she was a fine player and i just thought man that would be so cool to be able to learn from from somebody like that and so i, I wrote that letter to madeline i had her her uh, address in falls church virginia where she still lives and she forwarded on to her dad i was a chicken to, to reach out to him personally so i wrote to madeline and um and sure enough uh it I wouldn't say it was magical, but it was pretty darn cool. That's cool. It um it really reminds me of a relationship I had growing up uh, as a tennis player. I started playing tennis. My parents wanted me to get lifetime sports from a very early age, so they introduced me to tennis. They they made me take swimming lessons. You know, I I learned to play golf one summer. Um, tennis was the one that really for me took earliest. I was just bigger and taller than the other kids, so I could have a little bit of success. But I mention it because Rosemary DeHogue was the tennis pro at, at the time, it was the Wolf Hollow Racquet Club, which then became Drumlin's Tennis Club, which was next to Drumlin's Golf Club, which has hosted a couple of state AMs and has a very nice, and is also the course quite a bit, I'm not going to say exclusive, where Susie Whaley learned to play. Joe Tesori was, was her pro. I took lessons from Joe. And that was literally three miles away. And the randomness for me to meet Rosemary, who I didn't know because she was just Rose to me, she was the first master professional from the USPTA, who's a woman, in the Eastern section. She was only the 10th female to ever achieve master professional status um, in the USPTA nationally. She taught and was coaching 
zonal championship. So it's basically like the United States is carved up and you get the most elite players from the Northeast section, the Southeast section, and they play off and you go to Miami, you go to Texas, you go to wherever. She was really somebody and I had no idea. And she was just Rose and she was as cool as they came and we really hit it off. And when I was doing a little bit of teaching, she mentored me about like, okay, we're now going to sort of transition, which of course they don't, you know, a good mentor never has to say these things. It's just the relationship over time changes as they all do. And she started teaching me about the business end of this, running pro shops, stringing rackets for the members, maintaining relationships and like, hey, you're a 23 year old guy who hits a big shot. Now you're going to be giving instructions to a 65-year-old woman. You're going to have to change the way you talk. You're going to have to adapt to her. You have to understand what is success for her. What is success for these 12-year-old boys? What is going to be success for this 30-year-old guy who doesn't want to stop competing at a high level? And she was amazing. And she was literally, like I said, three miles down the road. And the randomness of having availability to someone who I didn't know was world-class. I have thought about it many times because it's helped me tremendously. How much have you ever reflected on the fact that you had somebody like this that happened to be, with all due respect to the Capital District, I'm another upstate kid myself. I went to St. Lawrence University, not exactly a tennis mecca or golf mecca. Um, you know, it's, it's just like because Syracuse wasn't quite cold enough. We had to forage even further north. You had somebody in your life, though, that was down the road from Saratoga, New York, you know, Capital District, Gansevoort, all these places that I know. Most people have never heard of these places. It's it's crazy. Well, it was that same three miles. It, that was the distance between his house and, and my house. And when he, you know, had that lesson, we'd have that lesson and he'd do the synopsis of what we we worked on um, what he wanted me to be thinking about. And then maybe there was a book assignment in there as well. This, you know, read this Sam Sneed book. This will, this kind of, this will get your mind thinking maybe in the right direction about matches coming up. It was to have that in that humble, that humble little man was just, I mean, how did, how does that happen? I mean, because as you know, going through all these, these letters, they, they become very, they got off. They weren't about just about golf. There was so no. much more. It was about, you know, that, that mentor knowing how to transition and when to transition and where to transition. He had a way about him and, and he did love to write. He, he loved to be curious about the game, about the people of the game, the places of the game, um, the surfaces of the game, all of that. And I think he wanted me to, to take those bits and pieces, uh, the bits and pieces that were best for me, and and go forward. How much of your relationship as these things, obviously, you've, you've got these letters, so it's it's amazing you can go back because people don't send friendly letters anymore. I mean, it's if I go to the mailbox, um, for me, it's either golf clubs coming via UPS or FedEx. The guy literally just laughs at how much – he's like, you really like golf, don't you? I'm like, well, it's a long story. It's work. Um and then it's bills and then it's junk. The number of, you know, correspondences that we keep now via mail is very, very few. But at the same time, when you have a mentor type relationship, I would imagine because these things are written, it gives you the time to think about what you're going to say. And if you need to reword it or re-say it, you know, it, it changes it. How much of the uniqueness of the relationship that you developed with him, would you attribute to the fact that much of it over years, especially when you're at Furman, is now done via the mail rather than the instantaneousness of text or email where 
it's a lot quicker or video conferencing. I, I think that was at, at its core. It was um, it became evergreen that way because you couldn't just you couldn't delete. It. I mean, not that you can't go back and find things or, or create a file, but you could literally put your hands on. Them. So I'm going to show you something that, that I, I was uh, reading last night. So this comes from his 87 year old daughter, Madeline. Again, the oldest is now 91. She still sends me stuff in the mail like he did. It's awesome. It's awesome. And this with this the, photo with was... With yellow post-its on it and stuff. With, and he loved post-its, too. Uh, the title is Resist Ordinary. Y used to have a Weimaraner, and so did my dad. And it was just in a in a random magazine or something that she, she was reading. And then she still clips out stuff out of magazines. Um, course correction. She sent this one as well. Um, yeah, she's just... She, she's, she's so much like her father. Dottie and David, take a look at this. So which, much which, like her father. But the coolest thing about it is that just it tells you as the recipient, people are always thinking of you. That that people know you well enough that when they see something else out of context, it reminds you it reminds them of you. And those are special relationships. Like that stuff does not happen often enough. Um, so when it happens, obviously I know you appreciate it. I've I've got a couple of buddies of mine who not necessarily through 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 the mail, but will send me notes. Like saw this on a roadside sign, like and it made me chuckle. And like it's it's it takes two seconds. It's literally now that we have phones with us twenty four seven, the bar the barrier to entry is pretty much zero, but it means a lot. So it's kind of cool. Um, could a Mister Pulver exist today with all of these technologies and the way that your relationship? I mean, mentoring is. I'm a big fan. Uh, it's an important thing, and I want to talk a little bit more about it in a second. But um, given the technologies and given this, people don't writing letters. Could could your relationship? How would it have been different if you had shown up in 2013, 2014 as an aspiring junior player? How is it different? I think he he would he would have loved part of the technology that's around uh, to make it a little bit easier to correspond quicker. You know, we were still trading letters constantly when I was at Foreman. So that maybe my, my transition to use your word again, uh, to, to college may have been a little bit easier if, if I'd been able to, you know, even just send video back and forth. He was never a yep. big video guy. It wasn't really part of the, it wasn't really part of the world that we option. lived in at the time. No, I mean, you took a, I mean, some of those photos and there were Madeline taking Polaroids at a lesson. <laughs> you know, that's, <laughs> That, that's Google, sort of where we were. Google, Google the word Polaroid. What's a real Polaroid, you'll, you'll right? So I, I think he would have embraced a lot of it, but I, <clears throat> I still think there's there is a space to make make time to write a note, even if it's not a letter of to this the point that that he had that there's there's time to make that make it permanent and and make it hands on, um, mm -hmm. but it would be I would it would be harder. But I would tell you too during the time of you know, this time of lockdown, look at like a guy like Cam Smith, Australian kid. He hasn't been able to see his teacher for 18 months, but he's maintained that contact through technology. And he's more yeah. than just a teacher. He's a mentor to him, too. So anyway, it might have been a little tougher, um, tougher for maybe older people to get on the get on that platform. But once they got there, I, I think it, it really does maintain that connection. So one of my. One of the parts of the book that really just jumped at me is a letter that he wrote to you on April 4th, 1983. Um, I love that, I'm sorry, that, that he referred to you as 
Miss Dottie Pepper always at the top in the in the address. It was always like almost like a formal business letter. The way he yeah, did no, the, like the formatting, like like he's he's keeping the formatting that my teachers tried to teach us back in like the early '80s. Like this is where the address goes. Now leave the space for your signature, and we chicken scratch something in there. He's talking about Nick Bolateri and Chris Everett, and I know Nick pretty well. Um, from my time at Tennis Magazine, I worked with Nick, and I know Chris very well. I, I It's been long enough. I ghostwrote her columns for Tennis Magazine. Um, my, I got to meet her for the first time. They flew me out to Aspen, Colorado. She was, at the time, married. Um, her husband was from, yep, was out there. And her sister, Claire, was a teaching pro at the Maroon Creek Club. I'm talking about a posh position. Man, oh, man. And... It was one of those deals where she had me come out and we were chatting about, okay, articles we're going to write and a photographer's coming tomorrow and this is what we want to do. And I was kind of being sort of just checked out like, okay, like how is this going to work? And she's like, did you bring a racket? And I knew from previously like, yes, I've got a couple. She's like, go back to your hotel, bring some sticks, bring, come on over. And we start hitting balls and I'm like, oh crap. Okay. Don't louse this up. And, you know, I'm hitting tennis balls with Chris Everett, which would have at the time been like you going out, having Judy Rankin come out and like, let's, let's play a few practice holes. I'm like, okay, bring, bring something that resembles a halfway decent game. Don't totally just mess this up and doing it well enough, you know, to where like, okay, she's like, cool. And she and I would go on hikes and we'd talk about stories and she told me about her career and it was great. Um, she had a very different take on a lot of things through her father coaching her the Nick Bolateri through Mr. Pulver would seem to have. And he, by the way, nailed it. 100% nailed Nick on this. Absolutely. Can you explain to, to people how, what his position on somebody like Nick and sort of academy style teaching was like, and he actively tried to keep you away from that. He wanted to keep you diverse. And I think was way ahead of his time on that. I, I think so. He was, um, he was a, he was a full round rounded experience sort of guy. And uh, I, I think too, there's a couple of times in those letters that you see that he, um, he sensed that I was getting a little, maybe not burned out, but golf wasn't as much fun as it should have been. Or I wasn't, I wasn't enjoying the grind. Let, let's put it that. I mean, I was never one to have just a ton, just like, we're going to go out here and have a great time enjoying the grind. He understood that. Um, and that was kind of the way, that's the way he was too. I mean, he enjoyed working at something. So I think that that sort of uh, rubbed off on me as well. But he, he was so anti-academy, anti-picking um, one sport, specializing so early. It was important to have uh, – he, he loved that I still skied. He worried about me crashing, which I did. But but he loved the fact that I still did other things. And I would go to the pool with my friends and, and have that sort of um, childhood that, that – would make life better down the road. But he, he loved Chris's grind, uh, that she wasn't always the strongest, fastest person on the court, but she was going to find a way to compete to the last point. And, and he just thought that was the mark of a champion and she's a champion. Oh yeah. I, it's, and did, did he worry about you playing racquetball? I was part of my education. So yeah. <laughs> that was ugly though. Oh man, was that ugly. <laughs> Whenever, uh, whenever athletes start talking, if you've had a sports injury and then you hear about another athlete who has a similar injury and you, you hear like medical terms that, oh, I twisted my ankle, I sprained my ankle. When you use the word capsule, for example, in there, 
I, I'd had a really bad one like that. And when Rory McIlroy a few years ago had a soccer incident and he used the term, oh, the, something popped out of the capsule. We were at Golf Week and Jeff Babineau, myself, a couple other people, they were kicking around and they're like, oh, it's a twisted ankle. He'll be back in a couple of weeks. I'm like, no, 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 no. If he's using these terms and he's in a boot, I've had this. He's out for three or four months. I'm like, on his left ankle where he's going to twist and post and rotate over that, I'm like, there is no way he's in this U.S. Open. What do you mean? I'm like, there is no way if he did that, that he's at the U.S. I said, maybe the British, you know, give him another month and a half after that to hit balls and sort of see where we are. I'm like, when you mentioned capsule and, and injuring your ankle and a racquetball thing, but it's, you're not, you're, Daddy Pepper is not defined by golf and golf alone. And I don't think any athlete should be. And everything that's the study of these things now is that, especially kids, if they specialize too early, they physically can injure themselves because the overuse stuff kicks in as your body is developing and mentally you fry and you can only, I just think it's a huge problem that every parent should see that if they've got a kid who really aspires to be great at any sport, just to be more well-rounded, John McEnroe, again, to keep coming back, played high school soccer while he was also, by the way, a nationally ranked and soon to be world ranked player who would go off to Stanford, still loved to play soccer, helped his tennis and he had fun and he was on a team. Yeah. I, David, we live next to a, a rec center in Saratoga Springs. It's only about 10 years old and they're, you know, fields and we have AAU basketball and volleyball in there on the weekends and open field activities. And some of the things I've witnessed with parents, with kids coming out of those facilities and just things I've heard from living on the other side of that fence. It's, yeah. it's heartbreaking because you know, that kid's not, not loving it. You still got to get in that car and ride all the way home with that parent. And their time in that, in that sports space is probably going to be pretty limited. Yeah. It's we've, we've seen this and he sort of hints at it in, in the letter that, that a lot of times parents trying to live out their goals and dreams through their kids. It's uh, yeah. I see it a lot too. It's not fun. Nowadays, you are out there with CBS. You have been with, let's see here, you were NBC, ESPN, um, lots of different stuff. Uh, you were out there as an on-course analyst. And I guess my question to you a couple of things, do you, do you have a mentor in the broadcast world? Was there somebody as you were transitioning into the booth and getting onto the golf course that helped you in these kind of ways that Mr. Pulver helped you? on the golf course and through those years? Uh, was and is. I, I would say they're, they're both, um, they were extraordinarily helpful for me getting into to kind of developing the way I call golf now. Uh, but Judy Rankin, for sure, she was the nudge for me to get into this to begin with, going back even to 1999. And when I did decide to retire, she gave me some great advice about being concise, being able to choose your words uh, quickly, call it, get out. Because I was, as you know, at NBC, I was the third walker. A lot of those those things are when you, you're not going to get a whole lot of calls. And when you make make the call, you got to make it, make it quick and, and make it right. And she was just so, so good about that. Continues to be a mentor for me. We're in, in close contact. Um, actually, you know, she has a big part in the book. It was one of those yeah. things. Well, I learned stuff That's about right. her that I didn't know. And we've been, you know, I've known Judy for coming up on 40 years. So 
uh, and I, you know, she just, even one of those little things we're sitting in a, I remember doing one of my last U.S. Opens when I was with ESPN and early round coverage of the Women's Open. And one of the things that bothers her when she hears an announcer talk about the wind coming from a certain direction, from the southeast or the west or whatever, she's like, as a viewer, I don't know what that means. Know Tell that. me where it means from the player's perspective. It's like, yeah, you're right. Absolutely, <laughs> you're right. So those are those things that still stay in the back of your mind. And then on the course, um, I was I was really fortunate that Roger Maltby kind of grabbed me around the ground, around the shoulders and said, come on, kid. And and he was just a big brother to me at NBC, and I've taken a lot of the things that he does. Where he goes on the golf course, um, how he how he maintains a pretty normal uh, voice level while being pretty darn close to the players. Uh, he's just he was really important for me to to be around in those formative years that I was at NBC. What's the toughest walk that you do now for CBS? Toughest walk is Augusta National for sure. And shortly right behind there is, is Muirfield Village. Because if you look at Muirfield Village, you go into every green complex, and then you have to get back out. <laughs> you have to climb up and out. The golf course itself is much hillier than you would think in central Ohio could ever possibly be. Uh, but getting up and out of the green, the bowls at, at Muirfield Village is, is, a, is, a, is a challenge. Now, if I understand correctly, you are one of the very few people that is allowed who's not playing or caddying inside the ropes at Augusta National. Have you ever caught yourself in a moment or two and looked around and be like, wow, look, look where I am and look at what I am doing today? Yeah, that was pretty easy to do in November of 2020 when there was nobody around, too. <laughs> I might say. <laughs> that was really easy to go, holy smokes, I'm right here. Another... Uh, another ceiling broken. It, it, I just think I think it, it added to the show, and I, and I hope I've done a good enough job to to be able to keep doing that because it is a pretty special. It's a privilege to be in that space and be the one person that can offer um, that sort of perspective of what's going on on the, on those grounds. So I had an opportunity to play at TPC River Highlands yesterday. I can tell you that walk, walking up and over that one off 18 is no day at the beach either. Uh, exactly. So um, trying to get your still, you you climb up the hill actually a little bit even from 17 into the 18th fairway because it's almost yeah. you know yeah. they they've kind of built on a kind of cascading up the hill. It's well, more houses and more more places for people to view. I mean, from a viewing experience, there's a reason why Hartford has you know pre-COVID packed that place for decades because it's a great viewing experience and it's the easily the biggest sporting event that happens in this state um 15 to 20 mile an hour wind steady with gusts to 40 and let me tell you 15 six oh it was howling howling so when we get to 16 and 17 get really interesting when it's blowing like that um yeah i i hit a club and made sure that i was going to stay dry and somehow from behind the green on 16 was able to get up and down hitting a flop shot from a downhill lie and yes i'm going to claim that one because it was the best damn shot i hit of the day to save par but I, we 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 were up two with three to play in the match and i'm like i am not going to rinse on this one i may put it up into that guy's backyard but i am not going to rinse on this one and uh and yeah it was it was great and i'm looking forward to seeing it I bring it up because I also got an email on Thursday saying that there are going to be spectators at TPC River Highlands. And we're starting to see more and more spectators. And it's on a tournament-by-tournament 
state by state basis at this point. Are you as somebody who is out there amongst the players and at the events? You were at Augusta National again, not just in the aforementioned November, but having been there in April, and there were fans and excuse me, spectators um, that there were there as well. Um, the patrons there. Is it starting to feel like pre-COVID tournament atmospheres and such? I mean, the players talked about it. Rory has talked about it a lot, that not having fans didn't give him the juice. He was happy and appreciative to be out there playing, but it felt very different, and it affected every player differently. From your perspective, is it feeling like we're getting there? It, it is, and it's sounding like we're getting there because it's it's sounding different in my ear, whether I've got the cuff on or I've got my open ear. It's starting to... Um, the, the Friday afternoon vibe is definitely back there with very happy people. <laughs> I can tell well, you that. Yes, yes. <laughs> and, and, and as, as the day gets, gets older, <laughs> people get happier. Uh, that's, that's definitely back. And I do think that the players are, are responding to it. I mean, yeah. you've seen some amazing scoring the last few weeks. And I think there's a little adrenaline yeah. and a little go to that can be, get, can be credited to that. Uh, it's just, I go back to, to last year in June when we restarted and a couple of the players, you'd see them hole a putt and then they'd wave and then they're like, God, why did I do that? <laughs> There's nobody here. <laughs> or you're, you're, you're one person that you're allowed to have inside, you know, inside the, the bubble with you that you're going to wave to them. Uh, so it's the, yes, it's, it's starting to come back. And, and I think come back in, a, in an extremely safe way. I, I, I've been out there since day one, have not missed a tournament, haven't missed a round. And I, I don't feel anything but safe. You're, you're on with CBS this morning. What, what's your schedule coming up for the next couple of weeks? What's your run up to the PGA? Uh, every oh, up to we we do every week now up to the U.S. Open. So this okay. is a run of I, I I'm, you know I'm I'm trying not to think about. It. I think it's ten in a row. I'm just taking one week at a time, <laughs> one shipment at a time, one week at a time. But I do get to go home uh, every Monday morning. I catch the early flight home. Usually home by in the door by one. And then yep. get back out Thursday afternoon or, or Friday. So I watch the sh- I watch the telecast at home on Thursday. Try to get the golf course seen on Friday morning or Friday early day, and park myself in front of the in front of the television to watch the shows on Friday afternoon. So we're up to speed for Saturday. And we will talk about that the next time you're on the Forward Press podcast because there's a lot of really interesting stuff that goes on in the background that makes the telecast cool and stuff like that. So. Thank you so much. I hope you have tremendous success. I know that everyone who gets this book is going to really love it. Um, head up onto the web. You can get this book, I would imagine, just about everywhere at this point, Letters to a Future Champion. It's it's up on my website at dottypepper.net. And also, uh, talk about old school. Mr. Pulver would have loved this. It's at the Brick and Mortar Northshire uh, bookstore in, in Manchester and in Saratoga Springs um, and on their website. I have been to the one in Manchester, Vermont, many times when I go to feed the trout um, over there at Orvis. They love Cheerios. The Honey Nut Cheerios are good bait. They love the Honey Nut Cheerios. You can also follow Dottie at, at Dottie underscore Pepper on Instagram. Um, you put up some interesting stuff there because I also want to talk with you. I know I got to let you go about what seems to be like you're mentoring some other people now and how the relationship now and that kind of stuff. So it's going to be really soon. We'll have to do this again. Thank you very much, Dottie. Best of luck. Thanks, David. So now, since I don't get to go to the Walker Cup, I don't get to go to Seminole Golf Club. Julie Williams has already been to Seminole Golf Club, played Seminole Golf Club, and will be going to the Walker Cup this weekend. She makes her triumphant return to the Forward Press Podcast. Julie, how you doing? 
Doing well. Excited for the weekend. I bet you're excited for the weekend. It's Monday morning and you're like, to hell with this week. Let's just get me down to West Palm. I, have you ever been to a Walker Cup before? Uh, I went in two, 2013 when it was at National Golf Links. That, that so, oh my God, time out. Throw the flag. National Golf Links, and now you're going to Seminole. Just a bunch of dog tracks. Two of maybe like the three or four most elite golf clubs in the United States. Yeah, that, that's where you'll catch Julie hanging out. I would argue that you really don't ever get a bad venue for the Walker Cup, though. <laughs> so explain to people who aren't familiar with this, what what is the Walker Cup and, and why should we be really excited to see this on Saturday and Sunday? So the Walker Cup, this is how I explain this, you know, to my friends or whatever when I say what I'm covering. You know, everybody knows what the Ryder Cup is, right? You know, sure. it's, it's the, you know, biannual death match between, you know, the best PGA Tour players and, and the best European players. So this is basically what we're doing on the amateur level, except that we're going to pull players from Great Britain and Ireland versus um, the best players in the United States. And, and we will recognize quite a few of the GB&I players because you know several of them play college golf in the, in the U.S. So they're all players that many of them are players that um, fans should probably be somewhat familiar with. Okay, so is there the level of animosity? Is there the the sort of rivalry, if you will? I think the the, the general public maybe just coming around to, to the fact that the players on the U.S. and the European Ryder Cup teams, while they certainly want to beat the hell out of each other in competition, there is a party afterwards where the teams end up mixing together. And I think that social media over the last you know six or eight years has shown that that the animosity amongst the players isn't maybe nearly as much as it, it used to be when Seve. Uh, and Othabel were going up against guys like Lanny Watkins at, at all, and those guys, like, that there was some animosity. What, what's the vibe at a Walker Cup? Not, it's not, <laughs> like, I mean, I, I probably use the term deathmatch, you know, incorrectly uh-huh. there. That You know, they're, they, in many cases, I mean, these guys are playing each other week after week in okay. college golf. They know these guys. It's not inconceivable that you would have teammates, and a college team that are on opposite sides of the match in the Walker Cup. I think definitely there's some bragging rights there. And sure. everybody wants to represent their country. So so I think it's a much more of a probably honor that you were named to your country's team okay. of elite players and, yep. and less about, you know, going out there and wanting blood. What is <laughs> what is sort of the, the history, if you will, in terms of um, Walker Cup, wins for the United States versus GB&I and then how, what, how often do we see players excel in an event like this and then go on to become players that we have come to know on the PGA Tour and then the European Tour? Yeah, I think that you're going to see, you make a Walker Cup team and it's a pretty good indicator that you are on your way to success. For example, people who were watching Will Zalatoris at the Masters, that he, mm-hmm. he made a Walker Cup team. He was teammates with guys like Cameron Tramp. Um, okay. I'm, I'm trying to think of you know all the all these players. Dustin Johnson was you know was a Walker Cupper in his day. We're, we're going to see these guys on the Ryder Cup team. We're going to see them winning PGA Tour events. 
we are coming off a road win um, for the for the U.S. team. They won on GB&I soil when they they went to uh, let's see uh, Royal Liverpool, Royal Liverpool in Hoylake okay. two years ago. So yep. we got a little momentum, and and it's difficult to get a road win. You know that that is I think goes without saying because. The conditions are so different. So they went over there and are hitting, you know, these knockdown shots and are trying to play a ground game that they uh-huh. are not too familiar with. I'll never forget early week. I didn't go to that one, obviously, but early week I saw this video on Twitter, Cole Hammered hitting an iron shot, and it and it literally it just went straight up. Like it went straight up, and to watch this video, it just hung. It seemed to hang in the air against this wind and. He plays in Texas, right? Grew up in Texas, so that's probably not a little, not about wind. A little, but that's like times a hundred, right? So yeah. I I think that you know you talk about maybe who has the advantage on paper. I think both teams look really strong, but I think we're playing in the spring for the first time. Normally, this is uh, early September yeah. event. I was gonna say it's an early it's an early autumn event. Typically, like yeah. I was gonna ask you if this is the first time. Why are we playing it now rather than playing it in September? That's a good question. <laughs> I think it was just a, a date change. <laughs> it was a date change, and it and it you know um, we got a new like everything else is this is as I say like everything else is this having something to do with COVID. No, this was announced before COVID. So so this oh, thing wow. was okay. yeah. So this thing was shuffled, and it's a little new spot on the calendar. I think a lot of it has to do with trying to get your best field because it's a big ask for guys to, to delay a pro you know turning pro especially guys right. who are going to graduate college and they're they're ready to get to the next level it, it's a lot to ask to remain amateur for an entire summer when you could be out there earning money trying to get sponsors exemption trying to work toward your status so this ideally gives us a little better field but it does give the us i think a huge advantage because if you're not a college player playing in the U.S., if you've been back home in Great Britain and Ireland, I don't know legitimately how much golf you've been playing. I don't know how many tournaments you've been playing. I don't know what the weather has been sure. like. So I think, I think we, you know, maybe have a little bit of a leg up there, which, you know, is something to look at if you know this date is going to to remain if we're going to continue to play this thing in it the would, spring. It would seem to make a lot of sense because if you've got some elite players who, for example, under normal conditions would be playing a USAM. Um, which is typically, again, a, a later summer type of event, winning or being a runner-up at the U.S. Amateur gets you a couple of golden tickets to play in the following year's Masters under normal conditions. So that's a reason to stay and maintain your amateur status. Um, it will also give you some other really nice perks. By having this event here, those players can take advantage of that. It's pretty much the end of the collegiate season. We just had conference championships going on. We're looking forward to everything that's going to be happening out in Scottsdale in the coming weeks. Okay, so you can play, play if you win and you get to that level, you can play these events, play in a Walker Cup, compete in the NCAA championship, and then unless you've got something lined up for the U.S. Open and something like that, you can go right ahead. In taking a look at the lineup for and the roster for the United States team, it seems like, for example, there's a couple guys who have been really waiting for this to happen. Um, and the two that they, and they, and we already know they're going to turn pro. I mean, Cole Hammer is turning pro, isn't he? Strafacci is turning pro, right? Strafacci is turning pro. Cole Hammer, we don't we don't know. I don't expect him to go right away. The, the oh, really? Okay. 
Right. The one I'm expecting to go, obviously, because because he did announce and he's been waiting for this, is Tyler Strafacci. But he's in a little different boat. He, you know, he's he's already left. This would have been his fifth year at Georgia Tech, and he started the spring or he started the fall at Georgia Tech. Of course, the ACC didn't play in the fall, so he was yeah. there. He wasn't competing. And he chose to leave at the semester and go out. And he, he had an injury to, um, to his shoulder, which kind of set him back a little bit. He didn't play a lot on, in PGA Tour events. He didn't, we didn't see him at the Masters. We'll see him at the U.S. Open. And, and I believe he's going to make his first pro start, I believe, at the, um, maybe in Texas after, after the Walker Cup. So we'll, we'll start seeing him as a professional. But, yeah, I, I think, you know, probably John Pock as a senior – we're looking at some guys who who, who are probably going to make a decision this summer for sure. Quade Cummins probably being another one, but he's a, also a fifth year. Davis Thompson is a senior, so we, we have some guys who are at the end of their rope here, and so this certainly does not, you know, at the end of their eligibility. So it certainly does provide a little bit of an advantage for them. When do we finally get to say that Stuart Hoggestead, who is twenty nine, is going to be at the end of his rope, or is he basically just going to play in this thing in perpetuity? You know what? I, I interestingly, um, Stuart was at the you know the USGA hosted a very nice um, kind of media day to see the golf course and to meet some of the players. Um, Captain mm-hmm. Nathaniel Crosby was there, Stravachi was there, and Stuart was there. Um, and, and so one question I had for him is, you know, already I'm looking at this guy as what a great captain he's going to be eventually. Oh yeah. And I and I posed that question when, when do you start thinking about being a captain. Um, you know, and it was, it was, I think he is envisioning that he has a lot more playing to do in this event. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't see, you know, I see him being in the running for this for, for at least a few more years. And what's, then, what's interesting is, yeah. I'm sorry to cut you off, but everybody's got like these little bios that the USGA sort of puts together. And it's, it's really illustrious and cool stuff. I mean, you see, you know, really good colleges and universities, University of Texas and Florida, Oklahoma State, Oklahoma um, Pepperdine. I mean, all over the place. Stuart Augustad, top line, age 29, just blows everybody out. I mean, they're, most of these guys are 21, 22. There's a couple 23s in there. Um, you know, the fact that he goes on, his is the only one that goes on to two pages. Like, he, he's, he's got like a half-page thing. It sort of continues on because if you're going to list how many times he's played in these things. 200, uh, the 2016 U.S. Mid-Am uh, comes back over there. He plays in a couple of Masters. He's played the, uh, the 2019 Pan Am Games in Lima, Peru. Uh, this guy's been all over the place, and I'll let you get back to what you were saying before I rudely interrupted you, but, like, just oceans of experience. Does he sort of automatically become the, the leader of this team when the captain of the team is away? Are they just going to look at him differently? Yeah, I... You know, I think he is. I think he is close enough in age to these guys that, that it's that it's not as if it's you know, Mr. Hagestad, what club should I hit? You know, it's it's he fits in pretty well. And and word had it that in 2019 um, at Hoylake, he gave a kind of rallying um, locker room speech um, that maybe helped help the team, maybe get in the right frame of mind and and finish the job on Sunday. So. I think that Stewart is a sharp guy and, and probably um, pretty savvy to know where his place is, you know, and when it's his turn to speak up. And I, I think he probably genuinely is appreciative of the opportunity and likes to hang with the guys. It's a, you see this, yeah. you know, because we always have a mid-am on the team. You saw this with Nathan Smith. You saw it with Todd White. 
I mean, I remember those guys being there in, in 2013 and, and it was like, you know, they fit in very well They're At the end of the day, they're guys who like to play golf and they like the team format and they know the guys and, and they will have had so much time to get together as a team and figure out their pairings and who works well together. And there have been practice sessions already. So yeah, I, I think he's very much, you know, fits into this crew. When I grow up, I want to be Stuart Hagestad because uh, yeah, I, so I, every year, as you know, when we get under normal conditions, U.S. Open sectional qualifying, I living up here in the Northeast, head over to the Met sections, which for the last couple of years was at Canoebrook, where they have 36 holes and some people who may not be aware um, or maybe asking, like, why do I know that name? That's where in 2006, Michelle Wee tried to qualify and nearly did for the U.S. Open. Stuart has qualified a couple times through the north through the through the Met section to get into the U.S. Open, um, and I've gotten to know him a little bit. I've talked with him. He and I will exchange texts, and this is as deep as my amateur golf sort of stuff goes. He's the one guy that uh, that I know a little bit. He leads the life because I mean, after like you know doing all the stuff, and he's based for the most part on the West Coast. Um, he's lived in the New York area a little bit. I the last time I saw him. Um, we were going out, and he, he was—he had just literally qualified for the U.S. Open, and they give you this like sort of play. He holds up like you know, ticket to Pinehurst or ticket to you know wherever the heck we were going. I think it was, it was the point for Pebble Beach, and he's heading out and he's doing that stuff. I'm like, so where are you going? So he's like, oh, I've got a tea time tomorrow with Deepdale. I'm like, okay, well, you know, the hell. Like, it's, it's the, for those people who don't know, Deepdale is so blue blooded that they took a look at the people who came over on the Mayflower as a little bit of nouveau riche. I mean, it's just like, oh my gosh. All right. Tell me about the European, excuse me, the, the Great Britain Island, the GBNI team. What should we be looking at from those guys? Yeah, I think there are a few guys on that team that um, you're going to recognize, like I said, from, from college golf. Um, sadly, they they lost one of um, their Scotsmen, who I think would have been a really strong player, Sandy Scott. He plays for uh, Texas Tech, and he took himself out of the lineup. Um, he was initially on the team, uh, but he, he had a wrist injury. So he's been replaced by Jack Dyer. So that was a little bit of a blow. But I'm looking at Alex Fitzpatrick, who plays for Wake Forest. Um, little Younger brother, brother of? Matthew Fitzpatrick. There we go. Thank you. Um, really kind of funny guy, personable guy. Um, somebody who obviously all these U.S. players are going to know. And, and actually um, a couple of years ago at the – Pebble Beach U.S. Amateur, I think that was 2018. John Pock was actually on Alex Fitzpatrick's bag for a couple of matches. So, you know, cool. talking about animosity or lack thereof, that, there you go. But I think he is yeah. probably positioned to be, you know, he was a, a big leader and point getter for GB&I a couple of years ago. We've got Joe Long, who is the reigning British Am champ, who we saw him play the Masters. Um you know, I, I think Angus Flanagan is is, a, is another guy who we've seen play a couple of PGA Tour events, qualify in, um, play pretty Angus well. Flanagan, all, all due respect, looks like he's about 11. I mean, he should be <laughs> delivering somebody's paper. I, he can golf, and there's no question about it. But in taking a look at some pictures of this guy, I'm like, oh, my God, he's, he's tan. This is crazy. <laughs> Welcome to, you know, the Curtis Cup, which is which is the oh, women's right. version of this. And, and I feel like you, you do get some 10-year-olds and 14-year-olds in the running. So these, these kids are good. But, um, yeah, I think I'm, I am looking forward. To, I, always like, I always like the singles matches. You know, the, sure. the foursomes are, are fun, too. And, and um, the, you know, I think the U.S. 
practice that format a lot. That's not something we see over here. That's not no. something that they're used to. And they put a lot of work into that two years ago, and, and that was kind of a, a deciding factor. So I would expect that a lot of time has been put into that ahead of these matches as well. And just figuring out who pairs well together. Mm. Who you know who can who can ham an egg well? So that that's you know that's big. Anytime you have a team event, though, is figuring out who do you. When, was, when was the last time you played foursome? Because <laughs> uh, I never have. <laughs> uh, I think no, long ago. You know, in, in the old golf week when we used to have our staff grudge matches, we uh, we did play foursomes, and I remember I played with our European, our old European tour writer, Alistair Tate, and I, I didn't quite understand the concept of, you know, we should talk about, like, you know, how this works. And I think I just stepped up to the tee and started, you know, hit my drive, which determined, you know, which tee we were going to play from. And, you know, it was one of those things where he's, like, tearing out his hair and going, we have to communicate. So, you know, I learned pretty quickly, but Alistair was a good guy to learn that format from. Oh, my gosh. He'd be a good I, guest I, speaker. For I'd be a nervous wreck. I mean, I would be an <laughs> yeah. absolute nervous wreck. And I know that there's, like, a lot of these guys have a rule where, like, they apologize before they even walk to the first team. Be like, that's the last time I'm doing that. You know I'm trying to do my best. I know you are. Um, I would be absolutely a blathering idiot. I wouldn't be able to make contact. I would whiff putts because I'd be so afraid of where I'm going to put it's one thing if I do it to myself. If it's another thing, it's like, okay, you have fun over there, and and I'm just gonna like you know bury this one in a bunker someplace and let you, you know, grab a shovel and get your way out. I I, I have a tremendous respect for players who team well together in this format because I think it's about ninety percent chemistry and ten percent golf shots. I mean, obviously to play at this level, they can all play, but to be able to keep your nerves together and to be able to gel with a teammate like that in a format like that is so much harder than I think a lot of us give credit for. Oh yeah, it's a bad, and you know, if you're you're having a bad day, you're off to a bad start or, or whatever, but I you know, these guys I think that's probably, you know, I think that's why you see them put so much effort into who pairs well and get, you know, let's get you guys together and and get some practice and know each other's games. And you know, that that goes a long way rather than stepping up to the first tee for the first time with somebody who's going to be your partner for the next 18 holes and saying, "Okay, Let's do this thing. Yeah. It's, so it's going to be on Saturday and Sunday. It's going to be on Peacock, for those of you who have the streaming ability with that. Golf Channel is going to have some of it. Um, we're looking at alternate shot foursomes um, Saturday and Sunday morning. Eight singles matches on Saturday afternoon. Ten singles matches. Every man in the pool on Sunday afternoon. The United States needs to win 13 points. You get a win. You get a point. The match is halved. You get a half point. Griffin and Island need 13 and a half points to win the cup. Obviously, 13 for the U.S. retains the cup. Um, predictions? What do we What do we think here? You know, I, I have a hard time seeing uh, GB and I coming over and, and winning yeah. on foreign soil, soil like we did. You know, two years ago. That that's a hard ask. I think it's a hard ask under these conditions and under the year that we've had. However, the one thing that I think they do have working for them is I, I do think that some of the conditions at Seminole being right on the Atlantic, being pretty breezy, being pretty yep. um, hard, uh, you do have to play a little bit of a ground game. You know, around the greens are real tricky. You're going to have to have some creativity there. And it, it's not a course like probably a lot of these guys play every day. Mm-hmm. So I will give them that, that U.S. is going to have to come out with, you know, with their best stuff. 
they're not going to be able to, you know, halfway this one home. So, so I will say, I think it's going to be a really interesting match. What, uh, what did you shoot when you were there? I think I stopped keeping score after about 13. I uh, I had some really brilliant holes and I had some really ugly holes around the greens. I just, they were, they were, they were shots that I did not have. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I can see what I'm supposed to do. I don't know if any of the 14 clubs in my bag will do that for right. me. Yeah, I had, a, I've... had a terrific caddy. I'm, I'm expecting to see him. He thinks maybe he might have a GB and I bag. So um... cool. I think yeah, so I think it'll I think it'll be cool. Well, I'm I'm really looking forward to it. I will definitely be. We obviously we've got the Wells Fargo Championship for the PGA Tour in Charlotte, North Carolina. That's got a lot of big name players on it. But when you're not checking that out, set set up the TiVo, dial in whatever you know on on Hulu to record this because it's going to be a real treat to number one see Seminole Golf Course again. Uh, we had a chance to see it. This is the golf course where the Taylor made drive for relief. I believe is what it was called when we had Rory and Wolf. Mm -hmm. DJ was there and Ricky Fowler was there um, during the height of the pandemic. This is where we had, it's a very special place. I believe this is only the second time it's going to be on TV with that TaylorMade event having been the first. So Julie Williams, thank you very much for giving us a little preview of the, uh, the Walker Cup. We're looking forward to it. Thank you. Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.